This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. For those of you new to the podcast, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events, and season two is all about investor interviews. And today, we're headed back to our September of 2020 Speaker Series with Brad Feld, Managing Partner at Founder Group. Brad has been an investor and entrepreneur since 1987. Prior to founding Foundry Group, he co-founded Mobius Venture Capital, and prior to that, founded Intensity Ventures. Brad is also a co-founder of Techstars. He's a writer, speaker, and talks all about venture capital, investing, and entrepreneurship. He's written a number of books, and in this interview, he sits down with High Alpha Managing Partner Scott Dorsey to discuss one of his newest books, The Startup Community Way, which was released in July of 2020. Along with the themes of his book, they also discuss the startup ecosystem's growth and how to build a thriving startup community. So with that, let's jump into the episode. Go ahead and get started. Welcome, everyone. My name is Scott Dorsey, one of the partners at High Alpha, and welcome to our monthly speaker series. We're uh, super grateful for all of you joining us today. And uh, first, I want to thank our sponsors, very close partners of our Silicon Valley Bank and Ice Miller. They uh, support everything we do and and really help the speaker series come to life, which is a real important important tenet to our our give back mindset and kind of the community gathering that's so important and so essential to high alpha. So today we have just an incredible treat. A very good friend of mine, Brad Feld, is joining us. And Brad is an investor and board member in high alpha studio, which is incredible to have Brad's uh, friendship and wisdom uh, helping to guide us. And Brad is uh, is exceptional in so many ways, including in board meetings. And uh, Brad, I aspire to be as helpful as you are during the board meetings. But on behalf of the High Alpha family, Brad, let me let me extend a warm welcome. Thanks for joining us. Anytime I get to hang out with you, I'm happy. All right, perfect. We're going to have a lot of fun over the next hour. Brad's got an amazing background, uh, founder of a venture firm called Mobius, another firm called Foundry that he currently uh, leads and plays a big part in, founder of Techstars, which is just incredible ecosystem of entrepreneurs, programs all around the world, helping companies uh, get off the ground and get started in a meaningful way, and also a very successful author. And uh, I know we sent a lot of books out over the last week, so hopefully you've received them or you will shortly. But uh, we're going we're gonna to start, start with Brad's new book, The Startup Community Way. And this is actually a sequel to Brad's earlier book in 2012. So Brad, congrats on writing the book, getting it out into the world, and 
maybe you could start by just talking about kind of the inspiration for the sequel and, and what readers should expect. Sure. It's a delight to be done with it. <laughs> it's <laughs> nice to see it in the world. In 2017, I started to get the question from people around the, around the world that had been engaging with startup communities, sort of what, what should we do next? And it's useful to sort of frame this in time because when the first startup community book came out, it came out early in 2012, I wrote it in 2010, 2011. And 2010 was the beginning of the emergence from the global financial crysis, right? We'd had this cataclysmic event globally in 2007, 8, 9, and even in 2010. And it was starting to be talked about as entrepreneurship and innovation is the path out of the global financial crisis. And these were conversations globally. It wasn't really well understood what any of that meant. And we were still sort of emergent in 2010 from the dot-com bubble, right? So if you think about the dot-com crash, sort of crashed 2001, 2002. By 2003, entrepreneurial activity starting again. 2004, Tim O'Reilly coins Web 2.0. By 2007, you're starting to have a new wave of companies. 2010, I think I was on the board of Zynga, and I, I have in my head that Zynga was the first IPO to raise over a billion dollars since the dot-com bubble, mm. right? So sort of that, that arc was beginning but it was really not accelerating yet in a way that was visible globally. So I wrote this book. I made the assertion in startup communities that you could build a startup community in any city that had at least 100,000 people. Hmm. And I've since adjusted that to say that every city has at least 100,000 people needs to have a healthy and robust startup hmm. community as part of the city. That's, a, that's not the only thing the city needs to be healthy, but it's a key thing. And so by 2017, entrepreneurship and the wave that we've been experiencing was in full bloom, not just in Silicon Valley, not just in the U.S., but globally. In 2012, when I came out with that first book, people were still saying, if you're serious about building a company, especially a tech company, you really have to go to Silicon Valley. And as somebody who's never lived in Silicon Valley and has been involved in helping create companies all over the U.S., I've never subscribed to that. I've, I've had lots of successful companies that I've invested in that have been in the Bay Area, but I've just never subscribed to the notion that you needed to be in a particular place. I've, you know, the inverse of that has been important to me, which is you choose the place you want to live and you build your life around it. And as part of building your life around it, if you're an entrepreneur, part of your life is to build a vibrant and healthy startup community. If you've read the first book, you know that one of the premises was that you have to take a long-term view. And I used to say right, you have right. to take a 20-year view from today. And I've changed that a little bit too, that you always have to take a forward-looking view that's at least 20 years long. So I've been in Boulder 25 years. I'm not minus five years on my journey. <laughs> I'm year 25 of a 45-year journey. You always just have this long view. And so in some sense, it was a little ironic that five years in, people were saying, what should we do next? But it was actually a good prompt because what it meant was that the idea of startup communities had really taken root, right? Prior to that first book, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. Hmm. You know, people talked about them as innovation cluster, re regional, this or that. Every now and then you'd hear the phrase entrepreneurial ecosystem, which never meant anything to anybody and was just kind of this, you know, burdensome phrase. And so 
this phenomenon that got sort of instantiated with the book was now in, in full bloom. And that was, the, that was the motivation. It was looking forward and saying, okay, people have the basic tools for this, but they're running into a lot of issues and they have a lot of questions about how to think about, you know, the next 20 years and hence the book. That's awesome. That's awesome. Interesting parallel also, Brad, that the book comes out just in kind of the early days of COVID, right? And in many ways, many are looking to startups and entrepreneurs to kind of lead us out of this economic recession. Uh, it's, it's, it's a point that's right on. And it's inside baseball about publishing a book versus self-publishing, publishing with an author is, or with a publisher, is it takes from the time that you're done with the book until the book is physically done is five or six months. <laughs> right. So we, Ian and I, my co-author, Ian Hathaway and I had really book in beginning of February. We didn't have the final edit cycle with the book <clears throat> until May. And the book didn't come out till July. So when COVID really showed up in force in March in the U.S., we still had a little time to work a few things in. So you saw a couple of places right, right. references to COVID. At the end of March, I wrote a blog post about the three crises. And I said the COVID crisis was three crises. It was a health crisis, the disease, which was generating an economic crisis. We had very healthy economy separate from COVID. And that was going to generate a mental health crisis because we're not used to being in little boxes on the screen. In the U.S., that's amplified a racial equity crisis that we've had in the U.S. since, you know, the beginning of our country 400 plus years ago. And there are probably some other crises floating around if you go look for Ian and I, when we wrote the Startup Community Way, it took us a while and, and just a quick sort of sequencing. We started in 2017. In 2018, about a year later, we'd written the book. And we had about 40, 50,000 words, which is about, this book's probably 60, 70,000 words, okay, but that's wow. about what you need. And, and we, we, we'd written the book and we hated it. We thought what we had written had sucked. <laughs> like there were some good, good things yeah. in it, but it just, it sucked. And we we're both like, you know, in that, in that moment, you know, you're working on a project, you really put a lot of energy into it. It's hard to write 60,000, 50,000 words. And we were struggling and we knew why it sucked. It sucked because it was just this, boring, burdensome thing that didn't have an organizing principle. It didn't have a thing that you could say, wow, that's, I, I read this book and I got this, this new way of thinking about stuff. One day Ian called me in 2018 and he said, I, I, I have it. And I said, great, lay it on me. And he said, a startup community is a complex adaptive system. And fortunately, when he said that phrase, I knew what a complex adaptive system is system was. I knew a fair amount about complexity theory. I was sort of in 19, early 90s. I'd gotten fascinated with it when the Santa Fe Institute had emerged and, and sort of complexity theory had started to be a thing. And we riffed back and forth for a little while and came off the call and we're like, yep, this is it. And we shortened the phrase to complex systems because a complex adaptive system is just a subset of a complex system. Just as a sort of an interlude. So if, if you're saying that's nice, Brad, but what is a complex system? three types of systems, and I'll define a complex system with three examples. A simple system is making a cup of coffee. You put beans in, you get coffee out. There's a recipe, a couple of different ways to do it. The coffee might not be any good when it comes out, but you put it's deterministic. You put beans in the machine, you get coffee out. That's a simple system. 
a complicated system is doing your monthly financial statements. Lots of steps, steps don't have to be done in a certain order. It's complicated, but you get an income statement, a balance sheet and a cash flow statement. It's deterministic, it's a thing that comes out of the system. A complex system is raising a child, right? We've all been children and we've raised children. If you, when your child is born or when you are born, if your parents say when you're 25 years old, you're gonna do this, you're gonna have this career, you're gonna look like this, you're gonna be involved with this person, you're gonna live here. Like all they're doing is setting you up for lots of therapy, <laughs> right? Because, because in a complex system, the outputs of any given step become inputs to the next step. And the word adaptive means it's constantly changing. And so the idea of a startup community was that you don't have a determined outcome. You don't have a playbook. You don't have a recipe. And it's something I've been saying for a long time. People say, well, we'll just follow the Boulder playbook. There is no playbook, right? There's a bunch of stuff you can learn, but what you do is going to generate outcomes that become inputs. And those outputs that become inputs are different than the ones we experience. And they change over time and they have to do with who's doing what to whom. Another key attribute of a complex system is that the interactions are much more important than the parts. So if you think about how we talk about things in our world, we tend to measure lots of stuff. And we all know the cliche, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Turns out not to be the cliche, or what was originally said by Peter Drucker. He, he, his comment is more complicated, and it's about measuring the right things. So in much of our world, we measure the easy things, not the important things. Hmm. And that's true in startup communities, and that's true in complex systems. So the, to link all this together from when we started, we landed on this in 2018. We basically did what any good developer or product creator does when they've written, done something that they're not happy with. We started with a blank sheet of paper. Hmm. And we had plenty of text that we were able to copy and put into our new blank sheet of paper, but we just started over. November 2019, we were done again. Hmm. And we sent out the book to about 20 beta readers people that we knew that, you know, wanted to read early versions of it. And the feedback came back, lots of constructive feedback, but, but one consistent theme was this book is too hard to read. Hmm. It's not organized right. Or I'm into chapter three and I still don't, like I'm bouncing out of this thing. Not it's boring, but I'm just, it's hard. And we had a tough week, right? When you're like, God, we've done this twice now. <laughs> um, but the feedback was there's really a lot of gold in here. There's a lot of good stuff. And so we took the book. It had about 100 different pieces to it. We reor reordered the 100 pieces, completely threw the order away, started from scratch. And then we spent a couple of months gluing, all, gluing it all back together. And that's the book. So that happened right as COVID was starting. Mm. And COVID itself is the intersection of a bunch of complex systems, right? At the beginning of COVID, I mean, there are people who said in March, oh, this will be over by the end, by Easter. Very famous person, very, very well-known person said, by Easter, this will be over. <laughs> my, my father, who's a doctor said, oh, don't worry about this. Not a big deal. This will be over by the end of April. Hmm. People had no idea what was going on. It was a non-deterministic system. And so, many of the, so much of the languages in the book, when you read the book, is what has caused so many of the things to happen in this complex system. Phase transformations, which are things look a certain way and then suddenly it's totally something different. 
right? Or positive or negative feedback loops. Even the language of emergence and contagion, which is language from complexity theory, is in the midst of this crisis. And so to start with what you said, like, there is no question in my mind that the opportunity for entrepreneurial activity and innovation over the next decade is enormous because we have so many things in our current existence, especially driven by people and systems that are incumbent systems that are either collapsing, have collapsed, are under enormous stress, or that we figured out totally different ways to approach them. I mean, before this call, we're talking about you know, remote work, hybrid work, and going, you know, full remote or full hybrid as a company. Like if you'd said that to people in January of 2020, they'd be like, what are you talking about? And oh, by the way, the infra can't support it. Well, here we are. Zoom's done just fine as far as I can tell. So this phenomena of complexity theory is so interwoven in our life, so interwoven in startup communities, and so interwoven in uh, entrepreneurship that in the end, the book that we started in 2017, we feel like is not just relevant for startup communities, but for so many ways of thinking about systems. And it's partly why we called it the startup community way, kind of in homage to Eric Ries, uh, who hopefully most people know. And it's an homage to his first book, you know, The Lean Startup. And then his second book that followed it was called The Startup Way, which took lean startup principles and applied them much more broadly. That's awesome, Brad. I appreciate appreciate all the kind of background and journey, you know, of how you got to to where you are today in releasing the book. And I'm really particularly happy that you really talked about complex systems, you know, kind of at the at the core of the book. And I wrote down I wrote down some of the attributes of complex systems that are in the book. Complex systems, and actually, I think they work for startup communities, but I also think they work for startups. Complex systems can't be controlled. Complex systems can't be fully understood. This one really was comforting to me. Progress is uneven, slow, and surprising. And, and often growth is not linear. And I really think of those as, you know, kind of lessons to building startups. And then we're building our own startup community, being a part of a venture studio. And I also really love your, your eye on, on kind of the 20-year vision. Because company and startup community building, it's such a long-term game. And, and you want progress to be faster but you have, you have to be patient. You have to make sure you're doing the right work and putting the right ingredients in to have that longer view. So we're, we're five years in at High Alpha, extraordinarily proud of our, of our team, of the 25 companies we've started, the platform we've built. We're in, the, we're in our new bottle works building that we're, we're kind of slowly moving into. Yet, we have, we have so, much work to, so much more work to be done. And, and as you said, probably not just 15 more years, we've got to figure out like 20, 20 plus from where we are today. So both inspiring and also just comforting that, you know, startups and startup communities take time and they're, they're a little messy and unpredictable, but that's, you know, that's kind of the joy and the serendipity as well. I've got a few other elements of the book I want to touch on, but I'm so intrigued by your writing and I appreciate you kind of getting personal and cracking open, you know, kind of your love for writing, but also what drives you crazy about writing. And I was just kind of curious, you're such a prolific writer, you know, I was kind of curious to ask, what do you love about, about writing? You're also a voracious reader. And I'd be curious just to, if you wouldn't mind maybe sharing your philosophy or approach on reading and do you go through waves where you read a lot and then you set the books down or are you pretty steady? And then, and I also was wondering, is you're like right in the depths of writing a book, 
Are you still reading a ton or do you kind of put that on pause as you go into writing mode? I'll start with the last one because it's, it's, it's been an interesting conundrum for me. When I'm writing a book, I, I have periods where I really don't have any energy to read. Right. Although that's, there's periods in writing a book where I, I used to use the phrase procrastinate. It's not procrastinate. I just don't feel like writing. I'm not the, I'm not the writer that gets up every morning and writes for four hours. Okay. It's, it's, it's more lumpy for me. And some of it is because I'm not a writer as a full-time job, right? I'm a writer as a hobby. I mean, I have, you know, I have a very full-time job. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I have had phases where I've been very disciplined about chunks of time every day, but most of the time it's like a wave and fall out of it and a wave and I fall out of it. It's very different also. I've only written uh, really one book by myself. Almost all of my books have been with a co-author. And that's interesting in and of itself because you have a co-author to sort of work off of versus being sort of in that solo discipline sense. As I've gotten older and written more books, I've realized that when I'm writing, it's actually really helpful to me to be reading as well. Hmm. I love to read. My wife, Amy, is also a writer. We have done one book together called uh, Startup Life. And the subtitle is Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur. And it was a really, it was a really uh, challenging book to write. It's part memoir, part story, but it's, it's, it was powerful for us to also work through our own experience. Um, but her, her tempo with writing is similar. She goes through phases where she's writing a lot and then phases where she's not writing much at all. But she reads a lot all the time. And the two of us love to read. It's one of our favorite things to do together. And what I really have found in my reading, and it's especially true, there was a stretch in, co in the beginning of COVID for a couple of months where I was very involved in a bunch of state of Colorado stuff. And that absorbed every available millisecond other than my, my work work. And then we were sort of trying to get this book done in that time period. So there was, you know, sort of a slice of that. And I just had no, no mental energy for reading. Like, you know, you lay down on the couch at the end of the day and you stare at the book and nothing happened. <laughs> Most of the time, though, for me, it's the every night between I'm done and I go to bed. I don't watch that much TV. Every now and then we'll, we'll you know, we'll end up in front of a series or something that, that uh, turns us on, but mostly it's using reading as the way to sort of decompress all of the stuff in your brain. And so then the reading can be, back to the first question, it can be uh, lumpy. It doesn't have to be, I, I read 19 science fiction books in a row, or I read, you know, 19 serious hard books in a row. Generally what happens, we, both Amy and I have what we refer to as the infinite pile of books. <laughs> so, you know, in, I could have 30 lifetimes and I won't read all the books I bought. And we read about, we each read about a hundred books a year. So we read a lot, probably a couple a week. And I'll go, we also go through phases where we buy Kindle only or physical books. And what I've started doing with physical books is when I find a theme that I'm interested in, I buy a bunch of physical books because then I can't avoid the theme. 
<laughs> Whereas with the Kindle, you end up with the books and, you know, it's, they get buried and then you have to resurface them and you have to sort of deliberately go look for a thing. And an example of that would be when George Floyd got murdered, I realized that in my book reading diet, I had, you know, an easy thing to sort of immediately flash to is I haven't read many books on racial equity. You know, I, the book Anti-Racism helped redefine uh, a lot of my own thinking very quickly about, about racism and racial equity. But there's, you know, 50 books that are important books to read that are a combination of history and storytelling and, you know, sort of clear art- assertive statements about racial equity. But then I also realized I read almost no books by black uh, writers. And I read no, not a little bit, no books that were fiction written by black women. And I knew a few like Toni Morrison, but I had read none. And I thought about that. I'm like, that's, that's stupid. You know, like, I'm not happy about that. Like, I'm missing this whole category. I mean, I read voraciously and I'm missing this whole category of writing. And so, you know, I bought a handful of Toni Morrison's books. I bought a couple of other female writers. I'm a huge science fiction fan. And one of the best science fiction writers today is N.K. Jenison, who's a black woman. Mm-hmm. I haven't read any of her books, even though like, you know, I'm in the science fiction stuff and I see lots of them. I'm like, what am I doing? Right, so it's, it's some of that. And so when those books, you have a pile of those in hard copy sitting by your couch, you know, that becomes sort of the thematic thing that you peel off. Another example of a thematic thread is in the last three or four years, I've become very interested in Buddhism, not as a religion, not even spiritually, but as a philosophy and, and sort of the linkage of so many tenets of Buddhism to our current reality in a way that is useful to me when I think about meaning and life and what I do. You know, there's thousands of books to read. And it's very different to have them stacked up on your Kindle versus, again, have a shelf with another 15 or 20. And you're like, you know what, I'm going to go read a book on Buddhism now. (laughs) Okay, this is the one. And the last comment I'll make on being a voracious reader is, I like, I like most everything because I learn from most everything, even if I'm not enjoying the book that much. I've learned that there's nothing wrong with not finishing and there's nothing wrong with skimming, right? And so it's one of these things where it's not a chore for me. We started this whole rant with the writing, reading thing. I've approached writing the same way. Writing a book becomes a chore when you're trying to finish it. But when you're writing it, it's actually really can be a joyful thing because you're, for me at least, I'm exploring a lot of ideas and I don't feel pressure to finish it until there is then pressure to finish it. It's one of the reasons I've, I think, written so much on my blog and written so much in other places, but without writing for other people Hmm. is it allows me to work out my ideas, put them in public so I'm more committed to the ideas than if I'm just writing an idea in a journal or in a notebook or keeping it private. But I don't feel any pressure to have a particular outcome. And then that creates a feedback loop. If you want to go back to complex system, that creates a feedback loop for me of much richer learning because I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm doing it in an active way versus a passive way. And I'm doing it continually 
And I'm not justifying that my email and memo writing and decks, you know, work-related stuff is writing. And by the way, much of our work-related stuff is not really thinking. You know, there is a dimension of thinking in the stuff we're putting out, but there's not that much of a dimension. You're not learning that much from it. You're kind of doing a thing, you know, that you know how to do or that you need to get done because you're trying to advance something versus I've got these couple of things. I can't figure out how they fit together. I'm trying to put these pieces together. That's the motivation for me. Brad, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm so happy you shared all that. You know, at the, at the core, you know, entrepreneurship is, it's about creativity. It's about learning. You know, it's, it's one of the aspects I love so much about High Alpha is we are, we are just continually learning. We're figuring out what is a venture studio, how to build it, how to serve great entrepreneurs, how to start new companies, how to be a good investor. And we're, you know, we're, we're in this uh, kind of spin cycle of learning, but, but writing and reading even way outside your domain is just super important, but often hard to get to, you know, as the to-do list stacks up and the email inbox stacks up. And I, I feel very liberated with you basically giving all of us permission to skim when you need to, and don't be afraid to not finish a book. Like just those two core tenets, I think are going to increase my readership quite a bit. So, so that's good. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you for that. You know, you touched on racial equity. There, there's a section in the book on diversity, and I, and I, I just you've been writing a lot and thinking a lot and reading a lot about inclusion, diversity, kind of racial equity, and you know, just be kind of curious to ask you, how are you, how are you putting that into action in your life, and then kind of what, you know, challenge do you have for us in the company building or venture investing spaces? We you know, all need to work hard to create more fairness and racial equity and opportunity for all. And, and I think we could all do a better job. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, let me reflect a little on my own journey in the last couple of months. And I, I'll mark the start of it around racial equity when George Floyd got murdered. So I had a, you know, a moment of a couple of days that were, I was very disoriented and partly I was disoriented because Amy and I have always been, my wife Amy and I have always been in, in our minds and our actions, longtime supporters of social justice causes. We have a foundation called the Anchor Point Foundation for the last 20 years. You know, we've given plenty of money to social justice causes. We've tried to be supportive and thoughtful about it. But I was disoriented because I finally, and it took me a couple of days to figure out why I was disoriented. I would describe us as passive participants in racial mm-hmm. equity and passive participants by doing things and providing money that made us feel maybe good about ourselves and maybe made us feel like we were supporting racial equity issues, but we were not actively engaged in eliminating racism mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. I was able to then flash back to my experience with gender equity in tech which started in 2005. So I'm fortunate both my parents are equal partners in their marriage. Amy and I are equal partners in their marriage. So sort of my own context is being equal partners with one's, with one's spouse. And because we're both, these relationships are, you know, hetero, heterosexual, heteronormative relationships, like the gender equality between male and female in those relationships was equal. 
and yeah, there's some gender bias dynamics, but sort of the partnerships were equal partnerships. In 2005, a woman named Lucy Sanders approached me. She was starting a new organization called NCWIT, National Center for Women and Information Technology. She'd been CTO of Avaya Labs. So she'd been CTO of a lab spinoff, you know, had 600 people working for her, had retired. And she decided she was going to commit the balance of her career to getting more girls and women involved in computer science. She asked me to get involved at the beginning. I was the founding chair of the organization. Within six months of starting to work with Lucy, I realized that pretty much everything I knew about gender equity at best was neutral and generally was hurtful or harmful. And when I saw men, mostly in this case, white men showing up in the gender equity discussion, again, at best, they were neutral, what they did, what they said, how they engaged. And most of the time they were hurtful or harmful. And there's a long, long list of those things. And so within six months, I'm like, I don't know anything about gender equity. Hmm. Like all the stuff I know, it's not, it's inhibiting me. It's not helping me. It's not helping me eliminate the inequity that exists. And Lucy and I had a long conversation. And from that came a role of eventually male advocacy, male allyship. These are phrases we hear now in racial equity, being an accomplice that language really didn't exist very precisely around gender equity in the mid-2000s. So NCWIT was one of the organizations that helped create the, the notion of how to be a male advocate for women in gender equity. I took that and applied it, that way of being within a couple of days and applied it to racial equity for mm-hmm. me. I'm like, yeah, I don't know anything. Most of the things that I bring to the racial equity discussion at best are probably neutral and probably most are hurtful or harmful. I knew phrases like microaggressions. I could kind of think about what they were and then I found myself doing it, right? I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a sec, you know, what's going on? And so I went very deep on a couple of vectors. One was my own internal exploration, reading, learning, listening. Another was I reached out to, I made a list of all of my friends who were black and brown that were friends, not acquaintances, not I knew their email address. And when I made that list, I was ashamed at the length of the list. It was 12 people Hmm. and only two were women. Not very proud of myself in that moment. I called, I reached out to all of them, emailed them, set up calls. And I asked them one question. Hmm. And the question was, what is something that you are involved in that I can support you in with time, money, and influence. I don't want to create something new. I don't want to solve a problem. I want to support you. I want to get involved as a way of learning, as a way of helping, as a way of linking our networks together in support of a thing you're doing, which was, again, a lesson I had learned from gender equity. I ended up through that because I could do it under my own control, I did it all philanthropic, philanthropically through our foundation versus, and some of them were non-philanthropic things that I was just deployed money against. But it wasn't just, here's a check. It was, I want to get involved. I want to help you tell me what I can do to support you, not you tell me what I should do to help solve racial equity. That then got me woven into a bunch of new networks, which amplified, again, complex system, right? Amplified this feedback loop. Generated 
a number of new relationships, including some relationships that in a very short order have become really substantive friendships. So I went down that path. So that was a sort of a layer one. On top of that, there's been multiple other layers. So one of the things that I was already on a path to was changing the makeup of a number of the boards I was on. And it was gradual. It was kind of one person at a time. It was kind of adding a woman to the board. It was, but it was gradual. And I made an internal commitment. And then I communicated to all the people I was on the board of that by the end of the year, I wanted to have uh, at least one woman and one person of color on every board. And in those situations, I would say most of those accelerated those conversations where then it became a conversation around that. And it wasn't check the box kind of behavior. It was, you know what, I, I recognize that this is a structural inequity and the only way to change a structural inequity is to change a structural inequity. I could give a couple more examples, but it was trying to layer in change with me that could then help positively impact the system over time, but without having a sense of preconceived set of assumptions about what I needed to do to help solve the racial equity problem. Almost the opposite of that, which is I don't know what to do. And so therefore I'm just gonna show up and engage and learn and listen, make mistakes, be uncomfortable, try to help, iterate. That's awesome. Did, did all your friends have a clear idea or suggestion on where you could jump in and be helpful? All 12 did. Several had more than one. I think I ended, uh, we ended up through our foundation supporting about 20 organizations. Some of them were raw startups, right? So one end of the spectrum would be a guy named James Oliver who started a, a new nonprofit that he'd been dreaming of starting called the uh, uh, Parentpreneur Foundation. Hmm. And it's for black parents who are entrepreneurs. So, you know, nice. be at one end of the spectrum, something that, you know, didn't exist at the other end of the spectrum, you know, supporting organizations like HBCU.VC. There's another organization that hasn't been announced yet, but that's doing fellowships for associates that, Black-led VC firms can't afford because they're small. Mm -hmm. So I'll be underwriting one associate for two years for a Black-led VC fund. I'm not choosing any of the people, but I'm providing that fellowship. So things like that, but then getting to be involved as a mentor, getting to be involved in the organization. So pretty good spectrum, but just very rapid within two, two months as a starting point for having some critical mass. Versus I think what a lot of people try to do is pick the one thing or pick the two things. My nature, you know, you understand this because I think it's your nature too. It's to try multiple things, knowing that some of them are going to have more impact than other. And for the entrepreneurs on this call, I, you know, knowing the one right thing to do is impossible. Right. <laughs> and so you have to try a few things knowing that some things are not going to work. That's great. That's excellent advice, Brad. Actually, first time you met, you and I met, I think we hopped on a video and, or maybe a phone call, and uh, and you said let's pick a couple things to do together. Let's just let's just let's just find a couple collaboration points and see where it goes. And uh, that's great advice. I think not only for better understanding and engaging in 
how to create more inclusive and diverse teams and, and ecosystems, but, but just relationships in general. So I, I, have, I have at least two more topics I want to get to, and the questions are starting to pour in. So please kind of keep the questions flowing. I'm going to hit two more themes, and then I'll go to the Q&A. The two, Brad, are Venture Studios. Love to get your perspective on Venture Studios and why you decided to support us and Pioneer Square Labs. And then secondly, love to talk about Jim Collins, you know, one of my favorite business authors of all time, you know, good to great was, was, was basically our, our roadmap to building ET. And, uh, and then, you know, you wrote this little edition of kind of turning the flywheel and you and I were chatting about it recently, how kind of every CEO and leader needs to really kind of create their flywheel and understand the flywheel. And I think that could be nice advice as we kind of click down from ecosystem building to company building. But so, so those are the two topics, venture studios, and then kind of how to build your flywheel. Yeah. So venture studios, I'm fascinated with new models around entrepreneurship and company creation. And I have been for a long time. You know, I started my first company in 1987. It was a self-funded business. I then ended up being an angel investor and took most of the money I made from selling that first company and investing as an angel when I knew nothing about investing. This is in the sort of 94 to 96 time period. I never made an investment before. I then sort of accidentally ended up being a partner at a venture fund uh, which you know had a big rise up and a big fall. I started some other companies along the way. I was part of the wave of creating an incubator. So at my previous firm, which was uh, ultimately called Mobius Venture Capital, but originally was called SoftBank Technology Ventures, uh, was a spin out from SoftBank. We created two incubators, one in Boulder, one in the Bay Area called HotBanks when incubators were the rage around the top of the dot-com bubble. So I've always been involved in lots of different models of entrepreneurship and company creation. We started Techstars in 2006, right? It was before an accelerator was a known thing, yeah. right? There was one other accelerator that had existed, that existed, which was, was YC. And they'd run, I think, two programs prior to us starting Techstars. So there was kind of this thing floating around as an idea but it was just very nascent. And our approach to it was very different in terms of being mentor-driven and, and how we approach the actual structural dynamics of supporting the companies. Not, not good or bad, just different. And you know, today, if you look at 2020, the number of accelerators around the world is enormous, right? Huge proliferation. One of our goals with Techstars was to be very open book. So we essentially open sourced our approach. We helped a number of other accelerators get started. We gave them our documents. We were mentors in those. So sort of intellectually fascinated with this thing called an accelerator. Along the way, in this 2006, when we started Foundry, we, we said we would have the same kind of intellectual curiosity about stuff. So we were a seed investor at the beginning or an early stage investor at the beginning, but we knew that over time, especially as we got older, that things would evolve and we try new things. So, you know, we did a handful of companies that we co-created with founders. We ended up going through a phase. We, we raised one of the very uh, first uh, select style funds, Union Square Ventures, I would attribute the first one to, and they called theirs an opportunity fund, but we were doing sort of 
Series C, Series D investments for our existing portfolio. The Angelus Syndicate, we announced it the day after Angelus got the syndicate thing formally approved, I think in the 2013 or 14 time period. So constantly experimenting with different models, which we've continued to this day. You know, one of the parts of Foundry's model today is that we're investors as LPs right. in 32 funds, including High Alpha. And so we've been sort of very, very experimental with different approaches. The studio approach to me, when I first encountered it, and I first encountered it, I think I probably had heard of High Alpha, but I first encountered it from Greg Gottesman at PSL, Pioneer Square Labs, when when Greg and his partners were starting to put together the idea for PSL. And we were initial investor in PSL and then ultimately a significant investor in PSL too and in the, in the, the funds. And we saw the studio dynamic evolve there. And of course, you were an investor in PSL, so you had a relationship with Greg and vice versa. And that then led, you know, not just us looking for a thing to do together, but when the opportunity to participate with High Alpha came up, sort of our view of PSL was it was a very geographically based studio, right? right. Pacific Northwest. And I loved the idea that High Alpha was a domain specific studio, B2B SaaS, right? It had a very clear sort of, we're going to be best in the world at creating and launching B2B SaaS companies. We've looked at many studios, probably another, many is probably exaggeration, let's say 15 or 20 other studios that have come to us for financing and we haven't funded any of them because they don't have certain characteristics that we see very consistently with both PSL and High Alpha. So that learning again is continual. It's not, oh good, let's invest in studios. Here's 20 of them. It's more, this is a model that's interesting to us, not just about company creation, but about where we as a venture firm can logically invest and how we as a venture firm should logically invest in partnership, but also be helpful. So that's, that's why studio has, has been so fascinating to me. Yeah, One last comment. There's, there's an, you know, somebody asked me on another call the other day, like what's next, you know, beyond studios. And I, you know, studio, the last kind of innovation is I said, of course not. Right. I mean, there's continual change in understanding of how these things work. And, and I think that's powerful. I'll, I'll tie in the flywheel to, to this comment. If you people haven't read uh, Good to Great, uh, you should. If you don't have the appetite to read the full book, you should grab a copy of the monograph. I think it's 10 bucks. And what Jim Collins did was he wrote a 40-page monograph that really goes deep on one element of Good to Great, which is the flywheel. And it's one of the most powerful strategic framings that can be used for any company. Interestingly, he has a couple of examples of flywheels, including Amazon's and how he worked, you know, to develop with Amazon or Amazon developed with him. I don't know how to attribute it. The basic original Amazon flywheel, which to, is still in use to this day, it's of course evolved. Hmm. And you look at it and you see it and you understand how this positive feedback loop works to generate what is over a period of time, nonlinear behavior. And you see it in companies that really have a flywheel working. You can abstract out even whether it's deliberate or not. And you go, whoa, you know, that's a powerful engine of growth. And, you know, of course, a studio like High Alpha at its core has a flywheel. 
And you, you know, you are running the business, you know, the way I understand high alpha from where I sit, it's very clear to see that flywheel. And some of the activity of the flywheel is not just improving quality of companies that get spun out, but accelerating the pace of the spin outs, accelerating the capacity for those spin outs to move faster because of the base that you're building underneath them. And then how that attracts new people to the studio and the next level of quality of people to the studio to continue that flywheel. So I think it's a very, very, very powerful um, moment for people. Yeah, no, thanks, Brad. That's well said. And, uh, you know, it's fun to think about your impact and involvement in indie, you know, really, honestly, just in the last couple of years with uh, investing in High Alpha Studio, really helping us at the strategic and board level. And then we have two tech stars programs here in Indy. You know, we didn't, we didn't have any. And now we have Techstars Sports and Techstars Heritage Group. Heritage Group working on amazing like industrial material technology and sports is sports. You know, it's kind of the, the intersection of our tech sector and our sports heritage all bundled into one. And, and both are bringing a new spirit of, of entrepreneurship to Indy, which is really special. I haven't shared this with you, Brad, but last Friday and then yesterday, I went through the pitches with all 10 Techstars sports teams. And it was awesome. I mean, just the technology, the innovation, how they're thinking about businesses. It's a very international group. Uh, majority are based outside the US and several have fallen in love with Indianapolis and, and want to move here. It, yeah, it's amazing. They're two entrepreneurs I chatted with on Friday. They live in Latin America and they're gonna, they've loved Indy so much this summer. They're going to move their, their company here and live here in Indianapolis, but literally pick up their families and go to Indy, which is just so spectacular for our region. So, so anyway, I thank you for all your involvement that, in that, the, that your, definition of the flywheel. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And your, your philosophies are just so in alignment with kind of who we are and what we're doing. And I, I didn't mention this earlier, but Brad gave me a tremendous opportunity to write a segment for the book. So there's a, there's a section in here on entrepreneurial recycling, <laughs> entrepreneurs like me that, that, that uh, you know, really try to give back and, and go do it again. And, uh, and, and Brad gave me the opportunity to write the exact target story. So, so pages 143 to 150, I expect all of you to read it. I, you know, I, I haven't been doing any book signings, Brad. I'm thinking maybe my mom, maybe Feel free. Mom will no, no. Chapter. That, might, that might be the extent of it. Find as many as you want. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. So that's good. So let's, uh, let's go to a couple questions here. Can I, can I tackle one question? I noticed oh, please, please. I just saw one that I think is a really good one, a really important one uh, by, by uh, uh, Chris uh, Pfeiffer. Uh, I just want to address it because I, I think, Chris, you've, you've landed on something that is important and powerful, which is the, que the specific statement. It's kind of a question statement. Don't you feel that when you, for example, inform a board that you're going to add a woman to every board, there's a built-in resentment towards that woman? Uh, as a woman in finance, I feel when gender equity uh, issue comes up in the workplace, I feel more out of place than I did uh, when the topic is not uh, top of the conversation. So, Chris, I, I want to I start by acknowledging that as a man, it's, it's hard for me to have that essentially lived experience of, of discomfort that, that you're describing. And from my frame of reference, I've seen a variety of responses by boards and by, by C 
CEOs, but there's two things in particular I think that I try to do besides just making the statement. One is I say, you know, if I'm willing to give up my board seat for that, which makes a different level of seriousness about it and generates a conversation because most people don't want me to give up my board seat. And so then it generates a conversation. Well, why do you feel so strongly about this, Brad, versus, oh, Brad said this, therefore we have to do it. Normally, by the way, I don't have the authority to force the board to do it. So it becomes a conversation. And that conversation, when it happens, is separate from the particular person involved because we haven't identified a person to join the board yet. So I try hard to create the dynamic so it's not a negative phenomena out of the gate. But I, I recognize that that's an intention on my part, which may not always happen. The second thing is, and, and uh, happy, to, happy to get you connected into this, if, you, if you're interested, I've gotten involved in several organizations that are involved in getting women on boards and they solve uh, two sides of the problem. One is, and this is what's interesting to me, one is they help board ready women who maybe haven't been on boards before get part, become part of a network to then be recruited to be on boards by companies that want women on the board. And then the inverse is true too, is have CEOs and have leaders who want women on the board to spend time with a network of women to start to build peer relationships with board-ready women. The best of these organizations, it's the one that uh, I've been the most involved in, is one called Him For Her. It's himforher.org. Reed Hoffman and Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn were two of the original supporters. Amy had become very support, deep supporters in it. In the time of COVID, they used to do dinner events. Now they do 75-minute Zoom events. And in the time of COVID, I think we've already done four or five of them together. Reed and I did one recently. I've been doing a lot by myself. And they're very powerful because it's, it's kind of addressing this issue. So it's not an equity issue as the primary issue. It's the, oh, we don't have a diverse board. Diverse board would be better in terms of thinking and in terms of company outcomes. By the way, there's a lot of research and a lot of literature for that. And so it changes some of that tone. Now, I say all that not saying that the concern or the way that you feel is uh, not valid. I think it's totally valid. And I think that's something that hopefully more boards and frankly, entrepreneurs will start to let go of the feeling of resentment and sort of turn around the other way and embrace this idea that more diverse systems generate better outcomes. So I just wanted to hit on that because I think it's really important. I appreciate, Chris, you bringing it up the way you did there. Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of Enterprise Cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.